Hello and welcome to The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24. Each week, the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in finance take you beyond the numbers and hype, right to the heart of the big issues of the day. Today, we're taking the temperature of the evolving US-China relationship and exploring what it means for investors. To help us do that, we have two editors-in-chief of a new report from the UBS Global Wealth Management CIO entitled Clashing Powers, which tracks the relationship post the US presidential election and explores some of the key areas that define it, from trade and capital entanglement to technology and cybersecurity. For investors who were expecting the Biden administration to press the reset button on US-China relations, 2021 has turned out to be pretty disappointing. But despite failures to allay concerns on the poor direction of travel of the bilateral relationship, there's little question that deep linkages exist between the US and China that allow their economies and businesses to benefit from the free flow of goods and of financial and human capital. Despite the challenges then, a breakup between both countries is impractical. And in fact, could their interconnection in some areas even grow in the coming years? Our panel will be on hand to give their view. We start the show, though, with a scene-setter from a diplomatic viewpoint. Lewis Lukens is a former U.S. diplomat and now a senior partner at the consultancy Signum Global. U.S. President Joe Biden held lengthy phone conversation with his Chinese counterpart Xi Jinping this week, the first time the leaders of the world's most powerful countries have talked in seven months. A White House statement said both men had discussed the responsibility of both nations to ensure competition does not veer into conflict. Well, earlier I asked Lou Lukens whether the phone call, after such a hiatus, represented a meaningful breakthrough. I think it's too early to tell if this is a meaningful breakthrough, but I think it is significant. Um, As you mentioned, there was quite a hiatus. They hadn't spoken, the two leaders, for seven months. And they spoke for 90 minutes yesterday, which, you know, you include interpretation in that. That's 45 minutes of substantive discussion. So it's meaningful in the sense that it's important that the leaders of these two countries communicate and talk and try to find areas that they can cooperate and work together. And that's what Joe Biden has been trying to do, I think. So whether this actually results in a ratcheting down of tension, I think, remains to be seen. But it's certainly a step in the right direction. And I'm interested in how much, Lou, in your view, the relationship between the two superpowers continues to be governed by, I don't know what exactly we'd call it, simple political expediency. In the end, there's too much uh, at stake and there's too much jeopardy for them to do anything other than, you know, maintain a a, a, ba- a basic level of, of civility, of discourse. Uh, do you think that's the case or is that still looking a little rose-tinted? Because we've seen real flashpoints, haven't we, over the last, you know, 18 months, two years or so? Well, there, there have been flashpoints and there will continue to be flashpoints. And I think it's maybe a little bit optimistic to think that, that both nations and both leaders will, will sort of put aside any animosity and, and, and work together for the common good. I mean, Joe Biden has been very clear all along that he sees China is the United States' greatest sort of global competitor. And and not only that China is, is the U.S.'s largest competitor or most important significant competitor, but also that the Chinese government represents very, very different values from what Joe Biden believes in. Hmm. So for him, this is a strategic, global, and values-based competition. So, you know, he will want to sort of find areas that we can work together, whether it's tackling the pandemic or climate change, but he's not going to sort of roll over and, 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 you know, sort of give up on his values in an effort to become friendly with China. 
Well, to that point about values, Lou, and I'm interested in your sort of personal reading on this. You have, I think I'm right in saying, first-hand experience in an earlier posting, of course, uh, working working in in China. How does it actually work? Given that clash, if you like, or the difference, the variation in value set, how do you ensure that you do good diplomacy then? Well, it's exactly what I think Joe Biden is trying to do, which is to carve out areas where you can work together. And I think both leaders, and if you look at the readouts of the phone calls from the two governments, they're both fairly open about the fact that there remain areas of divergence. Um, But they're also, both sides have an interest in looking for areas that we can work together. And that's, you know, the values-based question is a little bit more difficult. And Joe Biden, I think, is realistic. He realizes he's not going to change the the system of government and the values under which it operates in China. Uh, But he does feel that by carving out areas that we can work together, maybe you can help push China incrementally in the right direction. Lou Lucan's there. Well, let's check in with the two editors-in-chief of the UBS report now. First, Hartmut Issel in Singapore, who heads up the Asia team for equities in particular. Hartmut, welcome back to the show. And just to set the scene, first of all, I guess investors looking at Sino-US relations would have been, you know, after the last presidential election stateside, looking at how Biden was going to, you know, hit the reset button. Can you sum up for us how disappointed people will have been if they were expecting that outcome? I guess in the markets expected that we didn't so much, especially in terms of uh, tariffs, I would say we didn't expect a, a lot of new ones to come on because you know the more of these tariffs that were introduced, the, the more you also by definition had to include products basically that also would then uh, hurt the, the US economies or the US consumer, in fact. So um, that's basically where the line was, was drawn. So uh, probably also not surprising that you didn't see additional tariffs, but uh, yet, I mean, we also know the political landscape to an extent, it would not necessarily be easily sort of lower the tariffs again. So uh, for us, not so much a surprise, in other words, maybe for some of the markets. Yeah, and just before we talk in a bit more detail about some of the uh, really interesting areas that the report explores, just tell us how interconnected the US and China are, because I suppose some people say, look, you know, with tension, diplomatic and trade tensions fraught, you know, it, it increases the chance of some sort of decoupling. But realistically, that doesn't suit either party, does it? And they're, they're too deeply enmeshed with one another for that to happen. Yes, that's uh, certainly the the case. I mean, the the economic ties are quite strong, especially, uh, I would say, an area and hotspot area is the technology side. And and that's probably also the the area where, you know, some of the competition and and also dependencies and and possibly bans, possibly even extension of bans, we cannot rule that out, is uh, potentially at least uh, going to hit the most. And I think also that's uh, one area where investors will also put uh, focus on because it also connects to listed markets. And I suppose if we, you know, we're going to be putting this, looking at this through the prism of what it all means for investors. I guess before, again, we go through those specific areas, it's worth pointing out that, you know, the sort of house view, if you like, is that there will be and will remain lots of investment opportunities on both sides, even if there are ups and downs, you know, even if there are moments of great attention, uh, opportunities will, will remain. And perhaps we'll touch upon those in a minute. But that's an important point to underscore, right? 
Yes, we have seen in the past, especially with the domestic market in China, so the A-share market as such, that has a fairly low, uh, surprisingly perhaps low, correlation with pretty much any other equity market, and that includes also the U.S. So what you're getting is growth opportunities on both sides, but not only that, you do get diversifications because oftentimes the, the cycles are quite different, and also the market cycles are quite different. So so one goes up, the other goes down, and, and then when you wouldn't would expect it the least, uh, sometimes it's the other way around, so that uh, benefits portfolios, growth opportunities like you know, internet platforms, good healthcare companies, especially in China, more and more also leaders in green technologies, especially solar, they're world market leading uh, and also have consolidated a lot of share there. Yeah, so it would be a shame. We, we know we are aware of the discussions that are currently in the markets, uh, right, also on the, on the China side and regulation. But yes, I mean, these are the two most important or, or biggest, in fact, uh, stock markets on the planet. You cannot ignore either one. Well, let's talk about some of the different areas that the report looks at. And trade, you already mentioned tariffs in your opening remarks, uh, Hartmut. Let's talk a little bit about about trade. Is the key question, I guess, if looking at this from an investment point of view, the prospect of any negotiation around reducing tariffs from either side? Is that the key question? What sort of defines the, the trade picture in your view? Yeah, this would uh, probably uh, calm calm some nerves if that if that still were to happen. But again, we were not placing sort of highest hopes that this is uh, sort of uh, this is sort of imminent. So yeah, I think the the other part of the trade side that uh, that is very important is the technology part of things, or especially really it comes down to semiconductors and these these type of of very high end hardware components. So here it will be interesting, or, or perhaps even sufficient for now if there's no further escalation, but it would make it very difficult for some of the companies especially in the in the mainland so uh, and de-escalation would of course be very welcome but already the absence of escalation especially on these these sort of high-tech areas i think would already uh, give us a bit steady state here if we take a further step back hartman one thing i find interesting is uh, there are certain key issues that affect the whole world wherever we are wherever investors are sat things like climate change increasingly urgent a huge topic and of course, that is not something that is any respecter of, of of borders. You know, it doesn't matter. You can talk about things in terms of geopolitical context, but climate change doesn't doesn't stop and start where the Chinese mainland ends or where the U.S. is. How do we look and make sense of the U.S.-China relationship through that prism? A particularly urgent case, as I mentioned. How does the dynamics of the U.S.-China relationship shape? the house view within UBS for you and your colleagues when it comes to something as profound as climate change? I think on, a, on the bright side, this is one of the probably more more amicable uh, aspects of the of the relationship recently, and, and and probably also for 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 years to come. So if we, for example, listen to to the, the climate invoice, so, so uh, Mr. Kerry, right, being in in uh, for example, the, the not too long ago the, the the Shanghai summit, and basically pronouncing that on on this level, so climate change, right, there is uh, certainly a very strong willingness and, and determination to work together with China and. Um, which which makes sense and also again bringing it back a bit to the investment angle it's interesting to see that as i mentioned especially on the solar side when so many so many regions and countries now now want to go green or to green energy but you have the uh, certainly the upstream producers dominating the global chains essentially sitting in china so the us at this point still applying tariffs to to many of the solar products and they're really leading edge 
However, we do see also, we'll have to see if this becomes an enduring phenomenon, but uh, also many of the Chinese producers now sort of building factories outside of China so they wouldn't necessarily be hit by, by tariffs. So again, here also for, I mean, there, there is a positive outlook here in this level of relationship, but I think also for the for the investors, this could be one of the brightest spots here, the, the uh, solar companies in particular. Hartmut Issel in Singapore. Finally on the programme, let's hear from Alejo Chavonko, Chief Investment Officer, Emerging Markets, Americas, in the UBS Global Wealth Management, CIO. Alejo, thanks for joining us. It's interesting that your introductory notes to the report explore the competitive, collaborative and adversarial nature of the bilateral relationship. I think that bit of rhetoric's from from Blinken, of course. Just this week, we had news of Biden and Xi completing a phone call where they discussed the responsibility of their nations to ensure competition doesn't veer into conflict. What should we make of that call after, what, this seven-month hiatus? I think we need to start by recognizing that US-China relationships are quite complex and multifaceted, right? In the report, as you can see, our team identified important links between the US and China across at least eight key areas. This include trade, of course, but we can also count on supply chain linkages, capital flows, monetary policy, technology, cybersecurity, territorial disputes, and climate change. And I think it's important to avoid characterizing the bilateral relationship in any uh, generic way or categorical way, right? And we use this phrase by U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken to sum up uh, the nature of the relationships, uh, and it goes like, like this, right? Uh, U.S.-China relationships will be competitive when it should be, collaborative when it can be, and adversarial when it must be. And so when you take any of these eight topics, you'll find, more likely than not, competitive aspects to them, collaborative aspects to them, and adversarial aspects to them. So it's, it's quite complex, and it's important that investors monitor these aspects of each area of their relationship and how it evolves over time. Despite the flare-ups and tensions, and we've had some pretty explosive moments over the last two, three, four years between the two, nevertheless, there are still investment opportunities. And I guess that is something quite fundamental to keep uh, front and centre here. Without a doubt. Look, it's important to remember that in our analysis, we're not facing a Cold War scenario, right? Uh, what enabled the conflict back, back in the day to exist between the US and the former Soviet Union was the lack of meaningful relationship linkages between their economies and financial markets. Today, there are deep connections between the US and China that allows their economies and businesses to benefit from the free flow of goods, financial capital, and also human capital. So we do not think a breakup between the US and China is likely. And indeed, the interconnection in some areas uh, is, is likely to, to grow in coming, in coming years. Regular clashes are inevitable between both countries, but investors can work on mitigating the geopolitical risks in portfolios. When it comes to investment conclusions, I think it's essential to recognize that taking sides from an investment perspective is not the right approach in our view. Instead, we think investors will be much better suited if they keep exposure to both the US and China 
In that way, they um, benefit from their different economic cycles, growth opportunities and sectoral trends. Let me ask you next, Alejo, about this idea of the importance to investors of not concentrating their investments in in a single country, a single market. We know about, you know, home bias and this sort of thing. But I guess the fact that there will be ups and downs and humps in the road to get over, it, it really does underscore that this very fundamental point about building robust portfolios, which will better place investors to meet their long-term goals. Definitely. The key reason here, Tom, is that in our analysis, the volatility of portfolio returns is mitigated if allocations are diversified between the US, China, and other regions, of course. Um, The end result is a steadier path of wealth accumulation because over time, US assets could be doing well as Chinese assets suffer, or vice versa, as has often been the case uh, in the last few years. So we expect the concentration of investments in a single country to be detrimental to investors achieving their financial goals, right? And so we, we do think it's very helpful to, you know, keep your bets distributed across various horses because you never know what the future might bring. Yeah, and just finally, it's interesting, that a kind of a, a notion that's often returned to, admittedly, maybe more in the op-ed pages of newspapers than from economists, is this concept of, of decoupling, this idea that there could be, you know, a greater movement apart. And I think it's interesting, you know, you've already spoken about this. And if you read the report, it's, it really underscores this point about how unlikely that is, and indeed, how detrimental that could be, not just to the respective economies, but in terms of, you know, worldwide economic growth, the amount of technology innovation that is at the heart of this bilateral relationship. Are you confident, though, that there is enough awareness or sufficient awareness from sufficient stakeholders to the high cost of decoupling that that won't change and that that won't become an active issue, certainly during the Biden administration? Look, when you talk to the business community, to large uh, portions of the academic community, I think they are well aware that the relationship has been mutually beneficial in many respects, that um, the economies of the US and China, businesses from the US and China have benefited quite significantly from the free flow of goods, financial capital and people, right? And so when you think about a breakup, when you have already built such an intertwined relationship, this would be, in very disruptive and very costly uh, in terms of economic growth, innovation uh, in, in coming years. So, so I do think there is uh, significant awareness in, in, in uh, important circles and, and that, you know, it, it is unlikely that we'll see a, a meaningful uh, decoupling or breakup. And in fact, as I highlighted earlier, in some areas, we think ties might even deepen in, in, coming, in coming years. So this is, uh, importantly, I, I really want to draw a distinction vis-a-vis the situation in, in the Cold War that you know, many, many draw parallels with. This was a completely different uh, scenario in which the US and the former Soviet Union did not have meaningful linkages in terms of economics and financial markets. And so we're starting from a vastly different starting point, Tom. Alejo Shevonko. And that brings us to the end of this edition of The Bulletin with UBS, setting the agenda in the fast-moving world of finance each week here on Monocle 24. Listen again and find out more at monocle.com or catch up via your preferred podcast platform. The Bulletin with UBS. 
on Monocle 24.